9.30. I invite you to, uh, to join us. Well, as we began our series last week on James, we spoke of the trials that we face in life, and it's on a regular basis that we are facing trials. But we saw in Scripture that faith endures trials, true faith, that is. And the epistle of James clearly presents that reality. We spoke of how God uses those trials to mature us, to equip us, to take us deeper, And without those trials, we would never be able to experience to that degree his grace, his love, his compassion. And so I'm thankful when trials come into our lives, and I can understand James telling us to rejoice when they do. God does amazing things when that happens. Well, today we continue in the epistle of James, chapter 1, with instruction from James on navigating temptations in the Christian life. And so we there again understand just as faith endures trials, faith understands temptation. I'm going to ask you to pray with me as we ask God's blessing on his word. And you can ask the Lord, just open me up. We were singing songs, yes I will. We were singing songs, Lord, I want to hear from you. But it takes a heart that wants to hear from God and be submissive to what he says to us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for each person that is here today and for all those on uh, viewing this message online. And Lord, uh, we first of all want to um, ascribe our worth, uh, your worth in our time of worship. Father, we sang that we want to reveal your glory And all that is done. And may your word do that today. May everything that is said. Lord, every uh, thought in our minds and hearts today as we respond to the message. May it indeed bring you glory. For that's our desire. And we ask that you would work in each heart here today. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Well, as was the case when we spoke last time of trials... It is as well for our discussion today as we address the idea of temptation because it's something we all face. You all know that. Uh, And just once again, we understand that God does things in times of difficulty. So as you turn to James 1, you may have already, but think about the thought of, do you struggle with temptation? It's kind of a question, almost uh, rhetorical. Everyone struggles with temptation. How do we handle temptation? What does that struggle look like in our lives? Can anything be done when we face those times of struggle? I heard someone once say, I don't struggle with temptation. I just give in to it. Sometimes that's the mindset of people. Well, what's the answer to temptation? On an old TV show, a doctor was confronted by a patient who told him he broke his arm in two places. And the doctor replied, well, then stay out of them places. Uh, That sounds like a Groucho Marx remark. Um, And millennials, if you'll see me later, I'll let you know who that was. But the truth is, there's something that we understand. It sounds good. Stay out of them places, and we'll talk about things that will help us. But truth is, sometimes them places is in us. And that's the difficulty we face. Our our text confirms what we already know. Many temptations begin right here in our heart. Verse 14 says, each one is tempted 
when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. That call to respond to temptation begins here. And oftentimes, we fail to resist. We have all responded to temptation at one time or another. And we've seen how difficult it is to live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. So how can I defeat these desires to indulge in the pleasures that drag us down? Is it even possible? If so, how so? Well, the Bible does answer the question, and and it says yes. You can have victory over temptation. And today we're going to look at some steps of how that can actually take place. And the first step, of course, would be that we take a step of preparation. Uh, For some of you that know me, you know I'm a boxing fan, and, and I chose that image because when we take a step of preparation, it's because we were expecting something and we're doing something about it. Growing up in Brooklyn, I expected trouble. I expected there were going to be fights. And so I prepared for it. I boxed when I was younger. And it's a mindset that we have to prepare for something. Because James tells us when we are tempted, he did not say if we are tempted. And so we are reminded temptation is coming. Don't be surprised when you find yourself being tempted. We should understand several things about temptation. And the first is this. It's universal. Everyone is tempted. If you meet someone who has never been tempted in any way, the conclusion you come to is he or she is dead. It's the only way you can avoid temptation, and I'm not 100% sure of that. I can assure you that death is not the way to avoid temptation. Every living, breathing person who has ever lived, living now, or who will ever live, will face temptation. Every person here, every person online, we get tempted. Second thing about temptation is it's inevitable. If temptation comes to every person, and it does, be sure it's going to come to you. If you're not being tempted right now, hold on. It's coming. I can assure you that. Temptation is not something that we get inoculated to. It has come before. It will come again. It is inevitable. And then what we need to understand about temptation It's personal. Think about that. We all have our personal temptations. We have our pet sins, if you will. Some things that do not tempt you may tempt me. Some uh, things that don't tempt me may tempt you. And you can be sure that your temptations will be tailor-made for you, your weaknesses. And there's no doubt that temptations will come to all of us. So be prepared. For those moments. Don't be surprised by them. Expect them. But secondly, we want to recognize as well that not only do we need to prepare for temptation, we need to examine it. Just what is the source of this temptation? Now, you may think going in, well, that's pretty easy to figure out, but oftentimes we miss the idea of what's the source of our temptation. Some may actually blame God. James addresses that in verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. There again, I can assure you, God will never tempt you. If you come to that conclusion, it's a faulty analysis. Unless we understand the real source, we'll never have victory because we don't understand what's coming out 
to us and how we can respond to it. And if we blame God, we're not demonstrating faith in God. We're actually accusing him of being someone that he's not. So if not God, then who? You may have your thoughts about that, and and you may immediately think, Satan, isn't he the great tempter? He tempted Eve in the garden, and that is his mode of operation. And no question, he has a hand in our temptation. But too often, he gets the blame, really, for what is our bad. And we just have to remind ourselves once again that desire begins in us. That's where it comes. James tells us once again, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. That's where it is. And and truthfully, this type of uh, desire begins the process of this downward death spiral of sin. You see, the desire for sin is already in us. Sometimes we think sin is a magnet. But the truth is the magnet is in us. And we're drawn to sin just by our natural desires, for sure. And at first glance, you might think of this, but when we look at this idea of desires, it's extremely powerful. And you who have been tempted, all of us, we know how strong it is. We know the effect it has on us. But not all desires are wrong. Think about Scripture telling us that if a man desires the position of a bishop, He desires a good thing. So desires can be a good thing. And many desires keep us alive. They keep us healthy, well-adjusted human beings. But even good desires taken to excess cause us great harm. The desire for food, for sex, even for exercise, or perhaps relief from pain taken to the excess creates difficulties in us. When James tells us in verse 14 that this leads to deception, he's using a word here, enticed, that means to be lured by bait. That's the purpose of the hook. And when you bait a hook, put a worm on it, you have two things in mind. And the first to do this, you want to lure the fish, right? Fishermen, what's the second thing? Hide the hook. You don't want the fish to see the hook. You don't want to scare him off. And so we're enticed by sin in part because we do not see the consequences or we don't consider them. The fish does not see the hook. Unfortunately, neither do we. But the hook is there. And the consequences come. And if we're simply deceived into believing that it's not true then, folks, we're in a difficult place. We're blinded of that reality and of the strength of our desires. If we saw them clearly, perhaps we'd come to a different conclusion, make a different choice. Another truth about temptation is that it results in disobedience. It begins with desire, it leads to deception, and then it results in disobedience. And sin, obviously, is disobedience to God. James tells us in verse 15, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And the picture that James is using here is a very good image. It's of childbirth. 
And just as two elements must be joined together for conception, for a baby to be born, so it is. Two elements must come together to give birth to sin. And that's, if it were not bad enough, there's more. It doesn't end there. It ends with death. That's the ultimate result of sin. Think about this. We have all sinned, and sometimes this this confuses us. Well, if it's true that sin results in death, I've sinned, and yet God has not struck me down, has he? And, And there again, we have to be careful about our thoughts because he has never dealt with you in that way and brought you death immediately does not mean that he will not judge our sin and eventually, if we don't get it right, that it will lead to death. Think about what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should repent, but that all should come to repentance. Folks, in times of us sinning and not being struck down, God is exercising mercy toward us. Don't misconstrue that, though, because there is a time coming that we will be judged for the sin. And if we don't repent, it will lead to death. Someone uh, heard say, the wheel of justice turns slowly, but it does turn. And we should be mindful of that. God is calling for repentance. Once again, if we continue in sin, not forsaking our sins, death will follow. We will die inside. Our spiritual life will dry up. We will find ourselves in a difficult place. We will find ourselves as dead men and women. I think Jesus may have been referring to something like that in John 3.18 when he says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. I see that as dead men walking, people that are spiritually dead and are condemned. So if you want to handle temptation successfully, and I believe we all do, take a good long look at it. What is that temptation? What's causing it? Where is it going to take me? What are the consequences of this? It may cost you a relationship, a marriage. It may cost you and definitely does your intimacy with God. Your intimacy with others. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's just reality. God has created us with the freedom to make choices. I love that thought. But he has not given us the freedom to choose the consequences of our choices. And the consequences of sin is death. So, my friends, the exhortation that you are going to receive today from his word is, don't fall for it. Reject it. Stay as far as you can away from it. And I don't know why it is, but we have the tendency to get as close as we can to the line. Don't we do that so often? But don't give into it. Don't take the warning lightly. I've had the amazing experience of standing at the Niagara Falls, maybe some of you have. And that plummets some 180 feet. And you're just amazed as you stand there and see the creation of God. And, and at the foot of the falls is an array of violent, turbulent rapids. 
Further upstream, though, there are some calmer waters. And just before the well and river empties into the Niagara, there's a pedestrian walkway. And across that bridge, there's a sign that is hung there. And it says this, for boaters that are in that water. Do you have an anchor? And it's followed by, do you know how to use the anchor? That's pretty important when you're in that kind of situation. Do you have an anchor? If you're saved, if you're born again, as Jesus spoke about in John 3, I know you have an anchor. But it does beg the question, do you know how to use it? That's what we're talking about today. Do you know how to use it? Well, don't take temptation lightly. Be careful of how it appears. That's what we're talking about today. And the key, of course, is seeing it for what it is. It is no good, no matter how you look at it, when you get a temptation. Satan does not give good gifts. On the other hand, God only gives good gifts. Verse 17 tells us every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, remember, James began this portion of Scripture talking about the idea how uh, God does not tempt us. He's not the source of our temptation because temptation is not a good thing. Remember I said I could assure you it's not God? Well, based on God's word, he doesn't tempt us because he only gives good things. And I think you would agree with me because Scripture tells us temptation is a bad thing. So reject that lie outright. But Satan, on the other hand, he's going to try to make temptation look like a good thing. Young people, um, thinking back to growing up with a lack of experience, there were some things that I did and didn't realize the danger of it until after the fact. And that's the way life is sometimes. But you can glean wisdom from God in making choices and how they're going to affect your life. Many people are deceived by their desires. I'm always amazed at how people respond sometimes. And I'll sit in a council chamber and be talking to someone and hear them speak about the choices they're making. And it's like, what in the world? You probably heard the, the old song that uh, asks the question, how can it be wrong when what? It feels so right. And you know what the answer to that is? It's wrong because it's wrong. It's bad because it's bad. And you just need to understand when God says something, please believe it. Please respond to it. The good news, though, is temptation can be resisted because of what God has done in our lives. We can have victory over temptation. It doesn't have to defeat you. You have been set free if you're born again. If you've been saved, you have the power of the life of Christ in you. You no longer have to be a slave to sin, the Scriptures tell us. Now, you know that, but what does that look like when you put it into play? You now have the power because of Christ to prepare for it. You have the wisdom from God to examine it. you got the power of the Spirit to reject it. And that's God. God can do that in us to give us victory over temptation. Verse 18 tells us of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, everything we need 
to have victory over temptation, God has given us. And that's true about every aspect of the Christian life. The trials we spoke about last week, we can rejoice because of God in us and what he brings out of those. We can have victory. 2 Peter 1.3 says this, As his divine power has given us to all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, it is through our relationship of Jesus Christ that we can have the victory. Nothing is withheld. We were singing about the faithfulness of God this morning. And I hope, I, I think of the words this week as we, we talked about the, the songs that were going to be in the service. I just rejoiced at what they were saying. And the voices here this morning were beautiful. But I wonder, do we really understand what we're saying? That's, that's when our songs, our our Singing to God becomes worship because our heart is, Lord, this is what I want. This is what I believe. And we're ascribing that worth to God. Through our relationship, nothing is withheld. God's promise to us is very simple. No temptation has taken us, but such is common to man. But God, who is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation allow a way to escape that you may be able to bear it, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's a verse you should memorize. And every time a temptation comes your way, claim it. Repeat it. God says he will always make a way of escape. Now, sometimes that escape is different. Sometimes we just need to run. Sometimes we just really need to get out of there. Like the man was told by the doctor, we may simply need to stay out of them places. And what do those places look like to us? When I tell you the cost, the counter cost of what this is going to bring in your life, and you realize, wow, this is detrimental, what is it that brings these? It may be what you're watching or seeing or even listening to, and it just creates a spiritual battle in you that you're losing. I love the old story about the Indian chief talking to his grandson. And he's trying to teach him about spiritual things. And he says, son, always realize there's two wolves in you fighting. And the grandson asked, well, Papa, which one wins? And he said, the one you feed will always win. And folks, we're feeding the desires in our heart and responding to them because of what we're watching or listening to or allowing in our lives. I've encouraged others to do this, and I do it as well. If you walked out to my car right now and flipped down the visor, there's a picture of my wife. And I love driving and reminding myself of how I'm blessed to have her in my life, to have her as my spouse. And I also realize as I'm driving around, sometimes you get tempted. And I always look back at that picture and say, wow, a wrong choice could cost me that. I've encouraged husbands and wives, carry a picture of your family. And when you're tempted, pull that out and say, is, is that worth this? And you know, we, we think, well, of course not. We would never exchange that for that. But sometimes you do. Sometimes we make those wrong choices and it costs us in that way. Please do not give into it. It may seem strong, but God has given you everything you need. And then James says, we just simply need to welcome God's word. 
See, James doesn't just take us this far without showing us the importance of God's word when it comes to having the victory that we need. Listen to what he says in verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Folks, there's a victory right there. James is telling us to be receptive to God's word. Are you? I'm not talking about a reading plan. And I'm not talking about being in the scriptures regularly. I'm asking, are you receptive? He tells us to be, receive it with meekness or humbly accept the word. This word translated receive literally means to welcome. There's a a connotation of showing hospitality. Do you show hospitality to the word of God? Do you receive it into your home and allow that guest to have free reign? Uh, I chose uh, an image with a candle there because oftentimes when we have a guest, we put a candle in their room or somewhere and it makes them feel warm and fuzzy and we're showing them we received them well. Is that true for God's word and how we receive it? Is there that attitude of humility, of openness, of receptivity? Do we allow the word of God to move around in our home in any way? We have a wedding coming up at the end of the week. I'm rejoicing that my granddaughter will be married and we have family coming in and family staying with us. And my house is wide open to our family and friends that are staying with us. There's no areas that they cannot go because... I want them to feel at home. And that's exactly the way the word of God should be in our house. We're told that uh, it, is, it is implanted in us. And, and uh, many of you in the spring, perhaps, planted seeds for your grass. And, and I hope it brought the fruit of a great lawn. I was looking out this morning with the rain. Everything is green. But if you planted it and expected that, God is saying, I've implanted my word in you. And it's to bring forth fruit. Something should be showing as a result of that. And so to adequately prepare our hearts, James gives us some guidelines here. And these behaviors will enable us to accept the word and to receive the full benefit and blessing for it. Because sometimes when we're reading the word and and not benefiting from it, not responding to it, not yielding to it, We're expecting to be blessed by the word, and and that's not the case because of our heart. It's hardened. And so, first of all, think about this. We need to develop a capacity to listen. James says in verse 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. What's that idea of being swift to hear? Be quick to hear. Have an alert ear. He's not talking about physically hearing the word. We hear the word all the time from others. And from God. But are we really listening to what he's saying? Are we really hearing what he's trying to help us with? That idea of quick to hear describes an attentive heart. Listening once again for what he's trying to tell us. I was thinking about this and thinking of how this would describe a a new mom with a month old baby. And you that have been there will identify with this. You have that sensitive ear. Those guys sometimes will sleep through anything. But a mom will hear that baby's cry and not ignore it, would respond to it. And I believe God is telling us when you hear, 
That cry, when you hear that word, are you quick to act, responding to what he has to say? Sometimes, once again, we, we hear something, but we don't respond to it because not, we're not hearing well. Janet and I were talking just this past week about how, at times, one can be engaged in something and the other one is talking and we don't get it because we're not listening. But truth is, I apologized because I'm busy. I'm trying to do things. And sometimes I miss what is being said and I miss so much. And so I had to make that right because I do know where my bread is buttered. But we should be sensitive to what God is telling us here. And he tells us here a second thing in verse 19. Be slow to speak, meaning have a controlled tongue. One of the things that keeps us from hearing is that we speak all the time. Some of you have come across someone like that and you can't get a word in. Some of us have experienced walking somewhere and, and I'm always going somewhere with a goal. I have to get here, I have to get there. And oftentimes... Forgive me, but I say, hey, how you doing? And I keep walking. And I'm taken off guard when you say something like, it's really been a difficult week. Wow. I'm like already talking to someone else or moving on. I was expecting to hear, I'm fine. But I wasn't listening and prepared to respond to that. James says we need to be listening with ears that hear. We need to hear what people are saying. We're not quick to hear, and sometimes we're like that with God's word as well. A third thing we need to recognize is we need to cultivate a calm spirit. He continues in verse 19, be slow to anger. And he and he's not only tells us that we need to be slow to anger, but he says the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Think about that. Anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires in us. And the choices we make and how we live and the things we say um, affect that. I communicate sometimes and counsel people that are angry and not much is accomplished, at least at first, because they have all kinds of things in their mind, what they want to say, how they feel about that. They're not open, really, to counsel. You have to be careful about cultivating a calm spirit because, once again, we're not listening to reason. There's resentment, there's wanting to get ahead, there's wanting to be right. And these attitudes in our heart will affect how we hear the word of God. He tells us in verse 21, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. He's telling us, get rid of all the moral filth that is so prevalent today. He's telling us, clean up your life. What does that look like? We're not in spring, so I can't say, hey, are you doing any spring cleaning? But anytime God speaks to us, should we not be ready to look and say, Lord, what is it? The word here for filth is used, and it comes from a root in Greek that means earwax. What a beautiful picture and how God uses words to give us a, a good vision. I can't hear with earwax. I've had that. I had to go to the doctor and get that fixed. But when there's filth in our life, God's word tells us that we can't hear as we should, and it affects us. There are things today that are in your life, and only God can identify them. Maybe some others could speak into your life. But as you hear some things, evaluate what is there that God wants to remove from my life? What's affecting me? What's not building me up but tearing me down? 
The writer of Hebrews reminds us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The only way we can run with endurance is to take off that weight of sin that's holding us down. And what follows that in Hebrews is, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So it's not, once again, us, but it's who is in us and enabling us to do what we need to do. And then finally, uh, perhaps most importantly, we need to be submissive to God's word. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So be receptive to God's word. Be submissive to God's word. It requires observation. What is it saying to us? He tells us to look into the perfect law of liberty. And it's not simply talking about someone who merely looks at God's word. I love the words that God uses once again. It's talking about looking intently. He's using words here where we want to research it. We want to gaze, stoop down and look. It's the same word that was used when Peter, John, and Mary stooped down to look into the empty tomb on resurrection morning. Do you think it was a gaze or do you think they stood and examined and looked with amazement? That's what this word means. And sometimes we're not gazing at God's word in that way. Oftentimes the word is referred to as a mirror. And we look at a mirror and and we kind of gaze. Most people look at a mirror before they leave. You're not really examining things closely. But God's word says, don't just glimpse at my word. Look at what it's saying and what it can do in your life. Have you ever received a love letter? In this age of technology, young people, um, I hope you still can get a love letter because receiving a love letter, uh, it's, it's really the one time that we can look and rejoice and, and have those thoughts on our mind and heart. It's been suggested that the one time people read with great intensity is when they are in love and reading a love letter. They perceive the color of the words, the order of the phrases, the weight of sentences, and then they read it again and again and again, why? Because they love the author. Folks, do you love the author of God's word? James tells us that we should not only look intently at the word, but also review and reflect. Verse 25 says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty continues in it. Not a forgetful hearer, but a doer. This one will be blessed in what he does. It requires reflection. That's what we need to do. If we want to be blessed by the word, we have to respond to the word. Our community groups have been sent uh, a, uh, a tool that they can use when looking at the scriptures. And it applies to all the different things as we work through 2 Timothy. But it's this. And observe, interpret, and apply. And that's what we should be doing with God's word. And the less we have studied it, 
We'll not be able to really determine how should I respond to this? How should I decide on this when making a decision? Do I want to please God? What does he have to say? Last week we spoke about decisions. And and I put a, a tool out on the Welcome Center that if you had a decision that you were facing, take one of those. Well, they were gone. Someone came up to me and told me that there's more out there. And if you don't get one and you're in the midst of a decision, let me know. I'll be glad to get that to you. But David wrote in Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And there we're reminded that God is our protection. He's our defense against the evil one. But we can only use the word if we know the word. How well do you know it? Are you reading it, studying it, memorizing it? Has it become a priority in your life? Does it dwell in you richly? And it does require a response. And the best way that we can benefit from the word is to respond. That's what James tells us. Don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Have you got that settled in your heart? If you're going to be blessed, you need to settle that in how you respond to God's word. Many Christians stop at merely hearing and receiving, but they do not respond. James tells us if we think that, we're deceived. Someone who glances in the mirror but never really sees anything of what they look like, they don't benefit. Recently, I was looking in the mirror and and something looked different, and I looked a little closer. And there was a red spot on my nose. And I thought, hmm, I need to keep my eye on that. Maybe you've been there. And a week went by, and it didn't go away. It actually became more prevalent. And so, of course, I got to my dermatologist as quickly as I could. And following a biopsy, I found out I had basal cell carcinoma. That's skin cancer. And it's the most common kind. And in two weeks, I'll be having that removed. Hopefully, they'll leave some of the nose, but that's got to go. Now, listen to me. I'm speaking to um, someone today possibly that has spiritual cancer. And there's something going on in your life. And the earwax, because of the filth in your life, is not allowing you to hear what's being said. Or your hardened heart is just resisting God's word. Now, if I didn't respond to and looked at that and, ah, nothing to be concerned about. And I just... Well, I don't want people to look at that, so I'll cover it up with a little cream, as I have done, and didn't deal with it. This would be very bad. And, folks, I'm telling you in the kindest way I can, respond to God's word. If he's speaking to you today about anything in your life, be open to it. Be blessed by it. Allow God to work in your heart. That's what he's expecting of us today. That's what a mirror is like. It shows us what we really look like. It's the brutal truth, but it is true, and it only will do you good if you apply to it. James closes this section by saying, if anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. Visit the orphans, the widows, in their trouble, and keep oneself unspotted from the world. Folks, people matter to God, and they should matter to us. I'm so thankful for the homebound ministry. Many of you are visiting 20-something couples and families that can't get out, and maybe you're watching online, and we're so thankful that we have a ministry because those people matter to God, 
and your showing that's important to you. Uh, this morning you heard the announcement about the Good News Club. They were expecting 60 and there's 70-something good news, but who will respond to that call? And I recognize not everybody can. It's during work hours. But if you can, there's a need that God says, hey, visit those that may be in a difficult place. And here's opportunities for us to respond to the gospel. I began this series last week with the thought, if you say that you believe, why do you live as if you don't? That's still a question that you will have to answer to God. Unfortunately, there's a great disparity between what Christians say they believe and the way they behave. A.W. Toza said this, there is an evil which in its effect on the Christian religion may be more destructive than communism, Romanism, and liberalism combined. It is the glaring disparity between theology and practice among professing Christians. So wide is the gulf between theory and practice in the church that an inquiring stranger who chances upon both would scarcely dream that there was any relation between the two of them. An intelligent observer of our human scene who heard the Sunday morning message and later watched the Sunday afternoon conduct of those who heard it would conclude that it had been examining two distinct and contrary religions. It appears to me, he says, that too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right but are not willing to endure the inconvenience of being right. And that's being right with God. Folks, that was written almost 100 years ago. It was true then. And how much more true is it today in what we say and how we live? Folks, if God's word isn't affecting you today and, and you're not responding to it and it's going over your head, may I say your greatest need may be getting saved. And you say, well, why would you say that? And I say that because God says it. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man, that's the unsaved man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Folks, if there's anyone here that is like not getting what's being said from God's Word, let us help you today. I'll be at the hospitality table. I'll be glad to speak with you. Our pastors will be in the atrium and around the property. We would love to show you God's plan for your life concerning this matter of salvation or any need you have. We would love to be able to help you in any way we can. I'm going to pray now, and I would ask you to pray as well and pray for others around you that God's will would be accomplished. Father, we sang a little earlier, yes, I will. And, oh, Lord, I pray that that would be the response of every heart here today, some perhaps that have allowed sin to interfere with you doing that great work in their life and, and they're not receiving the abundant life or the joy that enables them to point others to you or experiencing, Lord, good relationships with one another. Father, there are things in our hearts and lives that we need to make right with you and I pray that your spirit would draw us, help us to confess, to repent, and, Lord, to experience your blessings. For any individual here, Lord, that's unsaved, does not know you, was sitting here and, and just maybe even mocking the message, oh, draw that one. Show them their need of salvation. Father, that's our desire today, to exalt Christ 
to be a blessing to these folks.